This week on a lively experiment, two steps forward, one and a half steps back as we head into the third calendar year of COVID. We'll tell you about new restrictions announced this week and a weeks long protest at the state house about the homeless and affordable housing ends with the real work just beginning. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us with the analysis, Bill Bartholomew, founder of the Bartholomew Town podcast. Marcella Bettenker, executive director of the Latino Policy Institute at Roger Williams University and Boston Globe reporter, Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome to A Lively Experiment. I'm Jim Hummel. We appreciate you spending part of your weekend with us. Governor McKee's long-anticipated news conference on Wednesday disappointed some and pleased others as he announced a hybrid order to reintroduce some indoor masking. It has three parts, including masking for everyone, regardless of vaccination status, in large venues, and here's what he said about the rest of the plan. Category two involves indoor venues, including retail, entertainment venues, venues of assembly, restaurants, dance studios, gyms. Inside of these settings with fewer than 250 people, masking or proof of vaccination will be required of employees and patrons. Category three, all office-based businesses and other public or private employers with indoor operations must require either a masking or proof of vaccination. These temporary measures will go into effect on Monday, December 20th, and will be reevaluated in 30 days after the executive order is signed, which I expect to do within the next 24 hours. The governor is still trying to figure out some of the specifics. One of the major uh, is who is going to enforce either the vaccination cards or the masking. Bill, I think you and I were both at this uh, news conference. I think that's the biggest question people have, particularly the restaurants. They don't want to have to have the vax card guy who's like the bouncer. It's, yeah. it's tough for the businesses. It's tough, and, and it's interesting because it's kind of split down the middle in terms of businesses that I've heard from or, or spoke with in that the mask mandate, on the one hand, it's a pain. Some people are worried the optics will drive people away from going out. Just that alone could be a problem. But others are saying the mask mandate can provide a certain level of comfort, and more people are going to want to go out now because they're going to say, well, you know, it's safer. Um, but that leaves a huge gap in terms of exactly who's going to enforce the mask mandate, who's going to enforce the, the check of the vaccination card, that's a weird space to be in right now, and there really is no answer for it. Marcelo, this is a, it, it, we didn't expect to be in this place, mm -hmm. and you know, the science has changed, but I wonder, it's just everybody's so tired of COVID, but uh, I think the governor's trying to strike that balance yeah. between protecting the businesses, but the Omicrons, it's scary. It is, and I think, to your point, we're all tired of COVID, but COVID has, and will continue to be around, not just for, for another two years, possibly, and so, I completely understand that we have to be thoughtful of, of businesses and how we're interacting. It's, it's a psychological and social issue at this point. But also, we have to understand that this is a global issue. 
And as long as globally we're, there are no vaccines available, and by next winter, we are going to see this happening again. So I can understand the back and forth of, well, you know, who, whose issue is this? Is it safe? Is it not? I think we, we have been wearing masks for almost two years. I don't think it's a huge issue. And I think it's something that we have to sadly continue to just, it's part of our life. It's part of our societal change. Yeah, I think he, the governor is trying to strike a balance between keeping the economy going and doing something to protect uh, Rhode Islanders as this uh, variant starts to spread. And I, I spoke, to, you know, uh, I spoke to the Johnson's mayor, Joe Palacina, and he, and he was talking about the importance of keeping the restaurants going. And he thinks it's, he thinks, you know, he's a supporter of, of McKee, but he's also, you know, he's not a wild-eyed liberal. And he was saying he thought this was the right balance because it keeps Luigi's and Trattoria Romano open and Five Guys, he said, is his favorite restaurant. And he said, and he said you know, he's, he's not too good with the technology, but he can get his uh, vaccine uh, card up on his phone pretty easily. So he, he thinks this is the right balance. Yeah, he plays Mickey the Dope. I don't know about all this stuff. You know he's on his phone going like this. Oh, absolutely. Policina. Um, you know, and I also, I also wonder, I have taken the stance that uh, even though, I think what's a little unsettling is you see some of these cases like the Pilgrim principal who died, and then we just hear, heard, we're taping on a Friday morning, that the Cranstonese volleyball coach, who was 41. So those are the cases that give you pause. When I go into a grocery store now, even though I don't have to, I will Monday, I wear my mask anyway to put other people at ease. Are you wearing a mask when you go? I am. So I, and, and to be honest, I think especially in the warmer months, I probably didn't. Um, but even in the last few months since the fall started, I have mostly because I have allergies and because in my brain now there's a lot more people. It's colder. Like this is when it's supposed to happen. And if you're coughing on people, they give you the stink eye, don't they? Right? With those allergies. <laughs> they do. And it's, and, and when other people sneeze, I freak out as well. So I completely understand. And so I think, again, I completely can understand the, the the, the psychological issues and like the social issues of it, but it's important. It, it's just I think a mask is is the the minimum we can do at this. You point. made you made a great point. It was almost I was thinking about as you were talking about that it might encourage some people to go out. I mean I don't think because we're in a much different place than we were a year ago. Just because I have to wear a mask to get into restaurants not going to deter me. It might deter some people, but also it's like the smoking argument we had. You remember like you used to go to Dunkin' Donuts and you couldn't see the you know the front because there was this haze of smoke and. And when they decided to eliminate that all those years ago, they thought, wow, we're going to lose some patrons, but we're going to get some more, right? That's right. And sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, the loudest voices in the room don't represent the majority of people. I think the majority of Rhode Islanders are okay with wearing a mask for the duration of the winter indoors. And to Marcella's point, Rhode Islanders have it pretty good when you compare us on a global level. The global south right now, the rollout of the vaccine in South America, Africa, Southeast Asia, even a lot different. They're getting a much lower quality vaccine. People are getting much, much sicker and they have a complete mask mandate that's never been relinquished since the beginning of the, pan of the pandemic indoors and outdoors. So for a winter time, you put on a mask here in Rhode Island. Maybe it's going to help you from getting the flu as well or even just a common cold. And it's also it's just sort of like, what's the big deal? Why is this the, the major political issue of our time? wearing a mask inside a grocery store during a pandemic. 
You made a great point, though, worldwide, that this is a global issue. We've got our American lens on it. And look at where the, where the Omicron variant developed, right, in South Africa. So, you know, I wonder if you see that commitment by the United States that's been talked about back and forth to make sure vaccines are getting to places where maybe they can't afford them. Well, I, I'm hoping that we are following through with the, the federal government's promises to actually share vaccine, like vaccination, because it's incredibly important. Again, while we found the vaccine in South Africa, it's, I mean, not the vaccine, sorry, Omicron in South Africa, we've seen variants in other places. And they're being, like, we're finding others as we speak. And the issue with that, again, is the, the low access to vaccination in other places is incredible. We are... We continue to complain about not being able to get things here on time. We're complaining about not being able to travel. That all is happening because people are not getting vaccinated. So this country has an opportunity and also kind of like, you know, it has to share what we have. Just fine. Go ahead. One, one point on the, the mask mandate, you know, I think other governors punted on that decision, so I, I give them a key credit for doing it. But if it's a good idea, if it's an emergency, like, why not do it now as opposed to waiting for a big shopping weekend this weekend, doing it Monday? I wonder also, and I asked this question at the, at the news conference about metrics. You know, because then people worry about, oh, it's going to be 30 days. It's not going to be 30 days. It's going to be, you know, because the scenario that I painted for the governor is, hey, the numbers have gone down. Well, hey, the masks are working so well. Let's continue it. Or the numbers are going up. Well, we need to do something. I wonder if we look at Massachusetts because Charlie Baker has decided not to do it. So isn't that kind of a good litmus test? And people will say, oh, look, Florida, the way they did it. Well, Florida's been on fire. It's gone up and down. But what about that? Looking at the numbers in Massachusetts, which does not have, uh, you know, Baker's held off on what McKee did. It's tough because how many people in Massachusetts on their own right without a mandate are going to wear a mask when they go indoors? And then here in Rhode Island, there's all this talk. I mean, you hear Rep. Brian Newberry talking about civil disobedience and not wearing the mask and so on and so forth. So could we actually have a compare and contrast that's valid with Massachusetts? It might be tough to do so because we don't really know what compliance will be or what um, people taking it in their own hands to wear a mask will look like in Massachusetts. But I think that's a great point that if we're about the same as masks come January 20th, maybe it's time to rethink the mask mandate as a, as a uh, a continuing policy. Okay, to be continued. There's been an awful lot of talk, uh, not only the last couple of months, the last couple of years about affordable housing. There's this huge tranche of money coming in. There's a very high uh, profi uh, profile protest that has ended now. Senators, uh, Senator Cynthia Mendez and Matt Brown running as a ticket, uh, uh, camping out in front of the state house. They decided that the governor's doing enough now. This has been your life. I mean, I'm so glad to have you on. Affordable housing, you have spent a lot of your career toward it. So I know we could probably do a whole half hour on this, but what is your thought now, one, about the short term, about opening up Memorial Hospital as a shelter, and two, the larger issue about how the government is, uh, is attacking this? Yeah, I, I'm really glad that we were able to find a solution for the short term, as you're saying, um, especially thinking about it, especially individuals that may have COVID and thinking of the holistic uh, uh, kind of a number of humans who may be experiencing homelessness this winter. I think the larger problem is not just in our state, but nationwide is we have not put enough resources into 
housing and every other issue that kind of encompasses housing. So when we, t when we look at individuals who are experiencing homelessness or are on the verge of experiencing homelessness, who are even a larger percentage, we're also talking about these individuals are, you know, have issues with food insecurity, with access to healthcare and things of that, and things of that sort. So I think as a state, we can do so much more. And are we in a, in a path forward to that? I do think so, but I think there's still a lot more that we have to do. Uh, I completely agree with everything there. There's no question about it right now. I mean, even just it, it's an interesting conversation because it expands beyond the quote unquote low income population. It's tough to buy a house or rent an apartment right now if you're middle class in Rhode Island. Mm. It's an extremely urgent situation. The acute issue of, of the unhoused in Rhode Island is something that, you know, it, it, it comes up on a regular basis and, and people certainly uh, by and large, who who in their right mind thinks it's okay to have people homeless? I mean, that's that's obviously not uh, that's obviously a crack in our society. The plan to address it is something that's probably realistically got to be a ten-year type of plan, because in order to build out that kind of infrastructure, you have to account for middle-class housing, lowercase a affordable housing, capital A affordable housing. And that's going to take a real vision to build out. It's not going to be solved in two weeks, that's for sure. Ed? Yeah, um, yesterday you know, we saw the encampment end outside the state house. We saw the governor announce a plan. But we can't be scrambling every year to address this kind of whole. It's an issue that comes up every year. This year it's way worse than usual. It's a real crisis. Professor uh, Hirsch at Providence College has been out there since September saying that we've got to do something um, this year. So this winter... Hopefully, uh, these initiatives will address it. One thing that came up yesterday, both um, at the governor's press conference and at uh, uh, Senator Mendes and Matt Brown's press conference, is the idea of a right to shelter um, designation, legislation making this a right to shelter state, just like Massachusetts. So I think that's something that'll be on the radar with the legislative session getting going soon. Marcella, I've had questions about what does affordable housing look like? Everybody agrees with the concept. But, and, and again, because you've, you've done this for so many years, is it subsidizing builders? Is it tax credits? Is it rent subsidies? I mean, when you take all that money, and it's great we have the money now, how do you use it? Or is it a hybrid of all of that? I, I would say it's a hybrid. Personally, I think it's a hybrid of it. Um, so what does it look like? Yeah, so I think what our neighborhoods should look like everywhere is a mix of low-income and, and, and mix, like mixed-income housing. Um, there are enough, there's enough research that shows that that actually helps communities grow, where there's communities where we have also access it, you know, to, to childcare and, and healthcare all around it. Again, because housing is not just the place you live, it's your community. And that's a really important thing that we need to make sure that we're making connections on. So I do think that, you know, tax credits are really important, but also we have to think about initiatives and be more creative on how we are uh, doing construction, right? Construction, it's what we hear every time. It's the most expensive part of it. It's not just the parts, it's the builders, every part of it. We have to become more creative how we do things. Um, a while ago when I worked for, for an organization up in Woonsocket, we had a program through the FDA where they individuals 
build housing and that sweat equity was part of how they paid for the home. These were the, the residents ultimately. Yes, absolutely. There. And so they helped build their homes and now they have beautiful homes up in Burville. And this is important. It's, it's, this is how so many communities build generational wealth, right? These are homes that are healthy. These are homes that are close to schools that are important to hospitals. And so I think that as a state and as a country, we are not creative enough and courageous enough of how to utilize the things that some of them are working, but some of them aren't. Um, and so I think that a mix of all of that. It's what the speakers talked about, investment, not just spending. Because, and you know, at the end of the day, the guy remembers coming home that he swung a hammer to help build that house. It's a tough issue. One part of the solution, I just wrote a story yesterday about tiny homes, small homes. Uh, one neighborhood builders uh, just put up five small homes in Onlyville, right near the bike you're path. over 5'5", five, five, you can't walk in? <laughs> exactly. Actually, they have really tall ceilings to make it feel <laughs> Which like, is ironic, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, in big windows, it makes it feel spacious, even though it's only 750 square feet. And they, they were selling for like $140,000. And uh, so I talked to the first person to move in, and they're like, you know, it's got solar panels on the top. This is the, the home of the future. The Globe had a great article about what was that tiny house outside of, like it was in Newton or somewhere? And it was the same deal. And it sold for like $370,000. I'm not yeah. even sure it had like, it had an outhouse. I don't know how that works. Yeah. In Newton, I think that but... tells you more about Newton, really. Yeah, yeah, it really, it, I think yeah. people would be like, don't have that. Yeah, I think being creative is the solution. Work live spaces for people, repurposing old buildings. There's a lot of uh, old military facilities in the state. You look at Newport Middletown right there. Tons of opportunities, old school buildings. And also regulating short-term rentals. That's becoming a major issue. It's crushing Newport. It's becoming an issue of, of substantial note in Westerly. And uh, it, it doesn't seem on the surface that it would be a major contributor. But you're, you're talking about a lot of housing stock that is now becoming unregulated, uh, dubiously taxed short-term micro-hotels. I wonder, uh, you have basically the vacancy rate is very low, if not, if not zero around here. So that adds the pressure, and it's putting people out on the street. How do you feel about the whole Memorial? Is, is Memorial Hospital going to make a dent on the people who are actually on the street from night to night, or is that a good start? In your I think mind? it's a good start. I think I actually am not sure what else was happening with the building, but it, I, I, you know, to Bill's point, there are a number of buildings, some of them probably not as a code, where you know, individuals could be housed. So I do think it's a good short-term um, solution. But I think that can also be a place, short-term solutions can give us a space for creative solutions. So how can we utilize that space or others where people can stay, right? And there's programs across the state that help people that are experiencing homelessness, families, young people. There, um, The number of young people who are experiencing homelessness is growing, growing by, the, by the day. And we have not yet to tackle how we're going to do that. All right. Another big issue that uh, the clock is ticking is redistricting in Rhode Island. Of course, this goes on every 10 years based on the sentence. And I like to say uh, critics say this is an incumbent protection plan. And in other news, the sun will come up tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, have we not heard? And I love Kimball Brace. This guy has made a living. I've never met the guy. You hear him every year and he goes, they, they talk about these questionable districts and he goes, Hmm, yeah, you make a good point about that. Like, he had no idea, whatever. So you've been covering redistricting. It's pretty big. It's pretty important, though, 
particularly as progressives are making inroads into the, the state house. They're all on a timetable to what? Get this done by January, February? January 15th, the redistricting commission has to present recommendations to the General Assembly. They enact it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, they, none of the uh, incumbents have been placed in a district with another incumbent. They all have their own district. So the, the gerrymandering accusations have come from challengers, people who want to challenge incumbents, usually in a, in a Democratic primary. Um, so, yeah, th there's been accusations about uh, political gerrymandering that it's, it's going to benefit Democrats, but that's more a result of it being um, that Democrats are in power. So they're, they're so dominant in the General Assembly. If you're protecting the incumbents, that, that's going to benefit Democrats. I love the East Greenwich thing. Don't yeah. separate the hill <laughs> and the harbor. You yeah, would think it was, you know, two different. And that, but that really shows you about how local it really is, right? Oh, yeah. It all, it, all politics is local. And last night at the redistricting commission, the members of the town council from East Greenwich were out, were out there saying, don't split that hill and harbor neighborhood. Well, look at District 16. You know, you've got Brandon Potter and his relationship with Speaker Shikarchi. You know, some people are saying, hmm, so if you're a progressive and you abandon the, the quote-unquote political cooperative or whatever and you align yourself with leadership, do you put yourself in a better position when it comes to redistricting? Um, I don't know. Who knows, really? I mean, what's going on inside those meetings? But it doesn't seem to hurt to be in... Um, you know, an incumbent and in lockstep with leadership and then compare that on the Senate side with a Lenny CEO who did pretty well in portions of his district. And they took away those portions, and now right? He's running, going, for those who don't know, running, he ran against uh, uh, Senate President Ruggiero and I guess is running again, right? Uh, yeah, he's running again, but now it's, I mean, come on, now it's a, a real uphill battle because of the inroads that he made. It, you know, it's like someone opening up the trap door as you're just walking along whistling and all of a sudden you're down in the sewer. They didn't put Barrington in his district, did they? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? I think it's a... I'm actually really excited to be to be hearing the issue because it's the first time that I've kind of been around this kind of work to do it. I think it's incredibly important that there are individuals that are testifying, that are talking about it. I don't know if community members know exactly what's happening because I don't think, you know, sadly as it's most things. It's yes. redistricting, Correct. right? So, yeah, it's, it's this thing like we did the census, the, done, right? There's nothing else that needs to be done. And so I do wish that this part of government was a little bit closer to community members. One thing that, you know, I think I'm hoping that can be happening is that when this comes to the municipal level, again, because it's all politics are local, when municipal redistricting does happen, that's where I'm hoping that a lot more community members happen, you know, are, are involved because this is a really big issue. And gerrymandering is real and it's something that we have to watch in every part of the race. I, and I agree that it, it's inside a ball, but it's also determines who you can vote for. I think it's very important. You know, I mean, it's in, in to the extent that it's politicians choosing their voters, we should pay attention. I appreciate the fact that you're, you're doing this so I don't have to. And John Marion, God bless John yeah, Marion. Yeah. He's there at every single meeting. Yeah, so. last night, Kim Brace, the redistricting consultant, said that it's a tie between John Marion from Common Cause and Steve Alquist uh, from Uprise uh, as who's testified the most before the redistricting commission. Yeah, he's so. going to need another set of glasses or a stronger prescription by the time it finishes. I see yeah. those redistricting maps, and I'm <coughs> honestly, I kind of glaze over, but it's important. It is. It when, is. It'll translate, obviously, in September. Yeah, I, I mean, know. Black Island's in a new Senate district. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's one thing that's going to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The... Um,
Yeah, they'll have to check the ferry schedule. Uh, <laughs> let's do this. We uh, we have a couple other things to get to. Let's do uh, outrageous and or kudos. Mr. Bartholomew, what do you have this week? Well, you know, it's interesting. Last time I was on here, I predicted, I guess, that Blake Filippi wouldn't run for governor. And um, Can we roll that tape? Do we yeah. have that? Let's roll that tape. Please. I should have gotten that uh, warmed up. Exactly. So you're, you're prescient. Well, you know, here's the thing. Rhode Island needs an opposition party. It really does need a strong GOP. It's, um, it's critical to our democracy to have that kind of debate. And when you have a, a GOP that is at minimum dipping its toes into the fringe issues, um, playing into paranoia about COVID, you know, so on and so forth, I think it, uh, I know that it alienates independents, moderates, constitutional conservatives, libertarians, and anybody else who just wants to position themselves as an opposition figure. And I think it's extremely dangerous to our future. Um, whether or not I agree with, with Republican politics, that kind of debate needs to happen. And the fact that we have such a weak GOP is a very serious issue. Uh, it's very unclear if there'll be a legitimate or maybe not legitimate, but competitive gubernatorial candidate. Uh, we're getting close to the point where it might be too late to gain any kind of momentum on a name recognition basis. And I think GOP <coughs> leaders here in this state really need to consider the stuff that they're retweeting on, on, on Twitter and some of the things they're saying and some of the, the, um, the people that they're aligning themselves with. They're never going to win over the center, and you need that center to be able to have any kind of reasonable chance to, to grow a statewide presence here. And it, 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 they really should reconsider their approach. Right. Marcella, outrage or kudo this week? I thought about this, and I, my kudos actually would be to every single family <coughs> member or parent who has somehow gotten themselves and their child through <coughs> this weird school year. Um, I am blessed to know a few teachers and humans who are taking their kids to school, and I think this the, the last few months have probably been a lot harder in a different way than maybe the last 18 months. Um, and so kudos to every single human who made schools happen, who every single like <laughs> child who is doing what they can with the little bit that they're given, especially in underfunded and underserved districts. Um, so kudos to every single human that's almost on break. I was remiss. I didn't welcome you. This is your debut. On Lively Experiment, we appreciate that. We and look I have forward. great people to share. Yeah, how about, all right, don't butter up the rest of the panelists. <laughs> next week, next time, we'll bring in somebody you want. Ed, what do you have? Well, you can count on me for an outrage. The other day, I watched the Senate Oversight Committee hearing, and uh, the child advocate Jennifer Griffiths really sounded the alarm about DCYF and the amount of children who are uh, under state care that are being shipped out of state, out of state placements, no place moving from one placement to another, home to home. And she said, you know, it's, it's, they had a hearing two months ago. She said it's getting worse in the last 60 days. It's getting dangerous. And I think, uh, you know, to the extent that we measure how government performs, we should measure it on how well it takes care of the most vulnerable children. So that's, that's my outrage. We have just a couple of minutes left. Uh, Bill, we were talking about this. James Deosa, the first out of the blocks, the former Central Falls mayor, announcing he's running for treasurer. And I know there are other people lined up. Well, you talk about it. You've, you've heard some other candidates. I think the big names that, that jump out right now, and there are many, but two that jump out are, are Stefan Pryor, Commerce Secretary, who spent a lot of time in front of a statewide audience throughout the pandemic and continues to. 
Um, and Alan yeah, for better for worse, and some of those here shutting right. the businesses down, right? We'll, we'll see how um, you know Brett Smiley, Stefan Pryor, all the the cast of characters from the COVID briefing, yeah. how that translates Whether to whether there's backsplash, right? That's right. Uh, also, Alan Fung, that's the other name that keeps being floated around. And I think the thing about the treasurer's office is that, with respect to uh, James Diosa, you know, it, it's not a landing place. Like, not to disparage the office, but the lieutenant governor's office or anything like that. I mean, it, it's one of those things when we have a debate for lieutenant governor, whether it's inside a Democratic primary context or, or in the general, uh, the financial expertise, the minutiae of understanding how to manage a humongous budget uh, at a CEO level and understanding and having a vision for how to best position the state fiscally, that's the number one thing. Uh, politics are... are, are way number two as compared with fiscal stewardship. 30 seconds on that. And we're also waiting to hear whether Senator uh, Ryan Pearson, the Senate Finance Committee chairman, whether he's going to uh, jump into the treasurer's race. It really has uh, generated a lot of interest. Next to the governor's race will be the marquee race in 2022, but the treasurer's race has got a, a lot of uh, people jumping in and taking a look at it. We're going to have to get the Providence Business News people to moderate all of those things. I don't know the right <laughs> questions to ask. Yeah. All right, folks, that is all the time we have. Bill? And Ed and Marcella, thank you. Great debut. Hope to have you back. And folks, come back here next week for one of my favorite shows of the year. It's our year in review show. We're going to have that debuting on Christmas Eve. We'll run it again on New Year's Eve weekend, where we take a look back at 2021, some of the predictions from the panel, and they're all for some prognostications for 2022. In the meantime, we hope we ha you have a great weekend this weekend and come back next week as the Lively Experiment continues. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.